Welcome back to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Chantal Bisson is a Canadian author, parenting expert, creator of Without Losing Your Cool, podcast host, and a mom to three daughters. She's also a force when it comes to raising money for all things children's charities, including Boost for Kids, Childhood Cancer Canada, Camp Uchigeas, and Artists for Peace and Justice. In her own words, and I quote, I did the brave work and broke the cycle of alcoholism. I overcame years of bulimia and shame, and I healed from all of the sexual abuse I endured. I've overcome everything that was meant to destroy me, and I'm still standing and actually living a great life of grace and joy. Please welcome Chantal Bisson. I am thrilled to have as my guest today, Chantal Bisson. Chantal, your uh, creds, rap sheet, whatever you want to call this, is massive and so impressive. I just can't wait to dive in. So we've got Canadian author, parenting expert, a regular contributor to Everything Zoomer, creator of Without Losing Your Cool, a recovering, and I love this terminology, a recovering actress, podcast host, mom to three daughters, and a grandson, and two four-legged kids, and then also the owner of Chantilly's Place, which is a marina in Ontario's North Kawartha region on Shandos Lake. And we used to have a cottage on Stony Lake, so I feel like we should have met by now. <laughs> we should have, except, you know, I'm so new to cottaging. We, bu- we bought the land in 2017, built a cottage was on the lake in 2018, and then I bought the marina in 2018. So I'm a newbie. I'm so new at the cottage thing. I still feel like I'm I'm getting my sea legs, as it were. <laughs> oh, well, good for you, though. Congratulations. Well, welcome to Breaking Brave. And and, and here's where I'd like to start, because it, it for me, it's linear. So I'm going back. So you were raised by a dynamic, hardworking, committed single mom who taught mm-hmm. you that w- women are stronger than they know and they can raise a family on their own. So can we start yes. there? Let's talk about your mom. I would love to talk about my mom. Um, you know, my mom came over from Europe when she was very little. So she had her work cut out for her being a new Canadian, first off with language, and then also trying to adjust to the permissiveness of parent, you know, the way kids were being raised here in the 50s and 60s, right? You've got to imagine coming from Europe. So, you know, there was a lot that she had to grapple with and come to terms with. And and one of which was, you know, coming from such a strict background, you know, they never talked about sex. So she had no idea how does one become pregnant. So when she was pregnant at 16, she didn't even know (sighs) until she was halfway through the pregnancy because she had had an ulcer as a young girl. And she thought just with her stomach acting up that her ulcer was back. So, you know, it's really fascinating to see how far we've come in, you know, one relationship. And what I mean by one relationship, I mean the one that I have with my mom, you know, from her childhood to not only my own childhood, but then raising daughters of my own. And it's just interesting to see how much growth and involvement there has been for women um, and certainly within my mom's own self-education. So, she really, to me, is so remarkable because when I look at her now in her 70s, that it's it's hard to it's hard to see her as that young girl learning the language and you know dealing with being bullied for being so different and then you know being pregnant without even knowing what sex is and what do you do with a baby at 16 and whatnot and you know for her to have come out the other side and to have raised three healthy humans who then went on to have children of their own and have, you know, only my one brother's marriage didn't work, but my younger brother and I, you know, we still have long standing marriages. Um, Our kids will hang out with us, which I think is a big testament (laughs) to being a good parent. I'm like, if they will hang out with you of their own volition, you have done a damn fine job. So that's my marker. (laughs) I don't care about the other stuff, but as long as they like me, I think I've done a good job. So, um, you know, as it is with any mother-daughter relationship, there were a lot of um, tenuous moments. Uh, I did feel often 
like she didn't understand me or she was too strict and she was, you know, all the things that we think about when we want to spread our wings and become our own people. But, you know, then as I became a mom and watched my daughters go through things, everything starts to click. And I think our respect for our mothers certainly grows as we kind of step into those areas of conflict, ages of conflict, where we maybe gave our moms a little bit of a hard time. It, it all starts to click. And I, and I feel like if you're in the position with self-awareness where you'll take the, the opportunity to be reflective and own your shit and then go backward and, you know, reconcile those, those difficult moments, I think it can make for a very beautiful adult relationship, which is what my mom and I are enjoying now. You know, um, we didn't always have a very easy relationship because again, you know, I didn't understand. I didn't understand why you know, my life had to be so different than so many other kids. And I now recognize it was different because she was a single mom and she was doing it on her own. And my dad was such a deadbeat. And you don't realize until you are a parent how fortunate you are to have an active, participating partner, not only in a marriage, but in parenting. You know, it's a big job. It's a big job. And it certainly was a big job, you know, on 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 Wednesdays when the money was all gone and so was the food. You know, so there's a lot of respects that I have for her now at, at, you know, 50, 50, soon to be 54 that I, I didn't have, you know, even in my early twenties. Um, so she's, she's, she, it's great. I'm, I'm very blessed and fortunate. Her mom died younger than she is now. So, you know, it certainly feels like every day that we get together on the earth, another day, another month, another year is just, I just feel so fortunate it just feels like winning the lottery to have um, have your mom still with you. So I, I try to take advantage of that and make sure that she knows that I appreciate her and that I'm grateful for her and and you know make sure that I stay stay the one doing the reaching out because I think it can be lonely. You know, as as women get into their seventies, you know, we start to be cast aside in society and we don't really have you know quote unquote social value or worth. Um, yeah. So I think it's really, really important that we as older adult children look and view our relationships with our parents as a real gift and blessing rather than, oh, I have to or I need to or, you know, I got to mm-hmm. check in with my parents. I think if you're fortunate enough to still have your parents, it, it, if if we shift our perspective from it, it being a should to a I get to, I think it, it would help a lot of relationships to continue to flourish because, you, you know, we can't get time back. Absolutely. Thank you so much. She sounds like an incredible woman. And every day is a gift. And of Mm -hmm. course, we're going to go through conflict. But wow, where did she come from? First of all, you, you reference Europe. What part of Europe was she coming from? Or did she come from? Her mom, so on her maternal t- side, it's German. So her mother was in Germany in a, in a very small town, a border town called Udim. And her father was a Romanian soldier. So they met at a dance hall that had been being hosted in Germany. And my grandmother actually already had a daughter. Um, she had become pregnant herself, unwed, with a different soldier, a German soldier, and that relationship, he he kind of ran for the hills after she yeah. became pregnant. So she was a young single girl during the war with a young baby. So um, when they met, they actually, together, he, he, I guess, is it called going AWOL when you leave your military post in your role? And they fled Europe on foot uh, during the night. So they ran from Germany and they managed to get all the way to France. And there they stayed until their immigration papers came through. They Obviously, they were trying to get into Australia. They were trying to get into Canada and the U.S. And they get ended up getting accepted to come into Canada. So I think, I can't remember how old my mom was when she first got to Canada. But, you know, she does very vividly recall being an outcast. And, you know, it was, everything was so so, so, so different than what she had experienced in her short time of being raised in Europe, in France. So, you know, it was, it was a, it was a, it was definitely a big deal. And her parents, more than even her, I think her parents were really locked into that meant that Eastern European mentality of how 
daughters should behave and sons are, you know, the more valued child in a family and a household. And so there was a lot of, there was a lot of push and pull for my mom because as she's, you know, coming into this Western society and watching all her friends be able to wear mini skirts and eyeliner and iron their hair and do all the things. And she was being held back and, and being treated very much like her father's possession. There was a lot of, a lot of physical abuse that she withstood and, and whatnot. So it's really remarkable that, you know, my mom was still standing, you know, and not only still standing due to her own upbringing and circumstances, but that she had any capacity for love or affection. And, you know, imagine being 16 and then pregnant again at 18. I mean, having two children by then, it's just, it's just shocking. (laughs) I still am gobsmacked when I think about what that must have been like for her. Um, You know, and my dad was always a runaround. So, you know, then she had all of that to deal with as well. So there was a lot of, you know, for her, there was a lot of um, obligation and, you know, shame and kind of staying somewhere longer than she should have in order to do what she thought was doing right by her children and certainly by her family, you know? So I was really proud of her when she finally, when she finally said enough was enough when I was 13. And, and, and as she likes to say, invited your father to leave the house for the last time. <laughs> what a so. incredibly brave, brave woman. Very brave. I could see imprinting on you the brave, independent woman that you are is a direct reflection, obviously, on how incredibly brave she was. It's like, enough is enough. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to do it on my own. Yes. Now, Chantal, am I right when I say, okay, so your dad left when you were 13, but by 16, you were an actress? Yes, that's exactly right. So how did that happen? I mean, did in your whole life, did you say, I want to be an actress, and you've known that since essentially you took your first breath? Or at what point did you say, I want to be an actress, and and then you were by the time you were 16? That's a great question. So, you know, my mom, because, again, you know, they were quite poor coming from Europe, um, you know, they... It's interesting to see. It's like every generation has their their race or their people that they immigrate into a country and then they get relegated to doing the, you know, less than minimum wage sort of work, worker roles. So both my grandparents had to work two jobs in order just to, you know, feed the family and whatnot. So my mother, I believe, got her work ethic from watching them do that. So she had, as a little girl, there were five kids in the family, and she, as a little girl, had always dreamed about being a dancer. She had always wanted to dance. And as we do as parents, you know, what we don't get for ourselves, we try to, you do all we can to give to our children. So um, when I was big enough, she put me into dance classes. And I was I was fine. I was four. I was like, okay, this is cool. This is great. And as the tale goes, my mother says, when I did my first recital, and I stood on stage under the lights and then people clapped. She said she could see just my face just lit up. It's like, I got it. <laughs> she was like, oh, oh, I made a monster. So, um, you know, my all my childhood, I danced. And there, I, I had a very bizarre dynamic with my father in that my dad was one of 13. His dad, you know, y- you can't blame people. Not everybody has the fortitude of character to push through their circumstances and their, you know, their genetics and their nature versus nurture parenting and whatnot. You know, some people do. My mom was one of them. Um, but my dad didn't have the same sort of character that my mom had. So, you know, his dad was a runaround. He grew up to be a runaround. His dad was an alcoholic. He grew up to be an alcoholic. He didn't break any generational cycles, whereas my mom did. Um, so what was interesting to me was that my father only held value for his sons. Like, as far as he was concerned, um, he didn't know how to relate to a female unless it was in a sexual way. So he didn't know what to do with me. And we had, we basically had no relationship. He, he had no interest in me. He was very neglectful. He didn't start to get interested in me until, um, 
I guess other people started to pay attention, you know, as I started to grow up and grow up. I mean, I was eight, nine and, and, you know, people started to say, oh, she should be a model. You should make your daughter a model. Oh my God, your daughter, is she in modeling? And then people would approach my parents and say, oh, can we, can we have your daughter as a model? And so my dad then started to be like, oh, oh, I see Girls have worth. There is something good out of a girl. So he begged and begged and begged my mom to let me model because my mom was like, no, that's no business for a, a child. It's She was like, not for it. Um, so there was a whole lot of uh, backdoor negotiations, as it were, between the two of them. And then finally, he drew me into it, you know, and he started to, you know, get in my ear about, I should model, I should model, I should model. And so before long, I started to badger my mother. So she was exhausted and she gave in. And so I started to model, I guess I was nine going on 10. And um, I remember when my dad finally was out of the house, I think I was about 14 and I had wanted all my modeling money to do something with it. And it was then that I came to learn that my dad had cleaned me out. He had taken all my money. So, you know, I, I, it it was very, very difficult for me to have that understanding. And, you know, having conversations with people, they can't really wrap their brains around a father taking from their child in that way, you know, and and we see it all the time with child stars. It's, it's a tale as old as time. So that was kind of me done with that. You know, I just didn't, I, it just put a really sour taste and I just wanted nothing to do with it. And then a couple of years later, I was dancing at a school talent show. And there was an agent and a casting agent there. And they were looking for up-and-coming kids. So they approached me after the show. And interestingly enough, I was in a relationship in high school with a guy who was not dissimilar from my own father. When the casting agent and agent approached me to ask me, if I would consider being an actress, I was so excited. I thought, okay, well, I love performing. I love musical theater. This would be it. I would love to go to New York and be on stage. So I, I jumped at the chance. And he, he was in the same way that my father viewed me as a possession, as something to control and something to have ownership over. He was also having that same mindset in the reverse way of like insecurity and you're going to, you know, you're going to be famous and we won't be together anymore. But in the belief that he could somehow have power over my decision in the way that my father had always had power over my decisions. So that was sort of my breaking free moment. I know it sounds crazy. You're in high school. It's just a high school boyfriend. But, you know, when it's your first love, that person holds a lot of weight over you, you know, and you want to... Certainly you want to, you know, keep that <laughs> going as smoothly as possible. Nobody wants a big public breakup. I mean, look at poor Taylor Swift right now. Um, <laughs> but uh, so that was a moment for me. That was really a defining moment for me where I it, I was making the decision to do something that had been on my heart since I was four years old to remove the negative stigma that had been placed on you know, performing or being, you know, quote unquote, in the spotlight that my father had placed on me by making it an ownership thing and then taking my money. And then also, you know, my boyfriend wanting to then have control over me as well. And that I recall very vividly being my first sort of, I'm going to do what feels right for me moment, you know, at 16. It was very, very, very much grounded in It matters more to me what will feel good and right for me than it does to keep you and please you and make you happy. So that, I I would say, turning to acting at 16 and, and going for it was definitely a very defining moment in me stepping into my power as, as a woman, because prior to that, from the time I was 11 to just below, just under 15, I was, you know, raped and sexually assaulted and abused and stuff for years. So it really mattered to me to do something that in in a weird way, because the entertainment industry doesn't really give you any power. It's really a false sense of power. I see that now at, at being in my fifties, but, you know, back then it was 
something that was going to give me independence, was going to give me freedom, was going to, you know, fill me in a way, fill a creative itch that I had. And, and it was, it was a big turning point for me. It was a really, really, really positive turning point for me. Wow. And I see your mom, see your mom emerging to say, I'm going to find my strength, my truth, my power. I pulled that off your website, our strength, our truth, our power in talking with the guests that you have on your podcast. That's the moment you said, no, I'm just going to live my life, not anybody else's. Exactly. And brave to have survived all of the horrific things you had to survive, obviously, as a child. I'm so sorry for your experiences there. Oh, thank you. When I look back, you don't realize, and I think you know, kids are, are, are having that similar experience now in, in different ways. But, you know, every sort of generation has its aha moment of that's unacceptable. Do you know what I mean? Like when I was going through the sexual assault and the groping and the rape and the, you, you know, all of it, I didn't realize it was wrong. I didn't understand that that was not acceptable. And that's not how everybody got treated by, you know, step-grandfathers, by you know, friends of your brother and your brother, like, you know, I didn't, I didn't know. I thought that was happening to everybody. I literally thought it was happening to everybody. And it wasn't until my girls were kind of hitting their tween years and going into that, that I started to, I started to break down psychologically and I didn't understand why. So when I went into therapy, the therapist said, you, what you need to recognize is that all those things that began happening to you at 11, your girls are now hitting those ages. So it's like you're reliving those moments. Like you're b- being taken back to those unhealed moments and you're fearful. You're like, ah. So, and so you begin to learn that it wasn't right. And then you've got to heal it because prior to that, you didn't really know it was not the normal way to exist and to go through life. So all that to say is that I didn't even know that there was anything that either I needed to heal from or that there was any reason anybody needed to you know, like you so graciously, you know, shared that you were sorry and you were, you, you were compassionate. I didn't realize that I needed, that that was something that was going to happen and come my way because I didn't even know that that was, it was abnormal. Understood. It's really interesting. It, it, it's totally logical. And at some point I was going to say to you, oh, all of the incredible charitable work that you and your husband do, it's all about kids. So I was going to ask, well, how did you become really so focused on the charitable work that you're doing within all of these charities for kids? I'll make a leap of faith that perhaps this was the story that connected you to making sure that children were well cared for. Am, am I right in making that linkage? Yeah, that, that that's not a far leap. That is 100% nail on the head because I recognized as I grew up and became a woman. And, you know, as my daughter started to grow up and I, my marriage, you know, started to break down because I didn't realize that I was withholding myself because I had no trust in men, mm-hmm. um, from my marriage. And there was a hollowness to the, the younger relationship that I didn't understand. And he didn't get either. Um, you know, it became very, very clear to me that these things are not normal. And so I then was like, well, then children, deserve the world. I mean, they should live in peace and they should live in health and they should only know joy. And I know that's, you know, pie in the sky, (laughs) like, you know, wishful, wishful thinking, but I, I feel very, very passionately about, you know, it's, it takes a village and the village needs to come together and we all need to do everything we can, especially if we're in a position where our kids themselves are are healthy and have access to, you know, clean clean water, fresh food, um, you know, three square meals a day, activities, extra like all of the things. I just I I, I don't sleep well at night knowing the inequality amongst children. You know, I, I, I feel like as we get older, and this is probably going to get me into some hot water. I, I do understand that there's generational trauma and there's generational wealth that allows many, many people to have access to things and whatnot. And they they get to go ahead of the 
the pack, so to speak. But I also feel like looking back at my upbringing and all the things that happened to me and even all the things that happened to my mom, that I do believe that there is the ability to dig deep and find your footing and change your circumstances. And I get that I'm a white woman and it's easy for me to say, sit here and say that as a white woman. But I feel like if we focus on making the playing field more level for all children, then I think a lot of the children from other socioeconomic backgrounds and also from different cultures and different races will have a better chance at success as adults and have better understanding and have more faith that there it is possible. And I could get all political here, but I won't dig into it. But I feel like our governments, I don't feel, I believe our governments are really, really failing. Certainly our new Canadians in this. And I, I talk about it quite openly on social media that the education system is broken, but not only broken, it's antiquated. Children learn, you know, they have the ability to process information so much quicker than than we did in the 1800s. And also they didn't have the same sort of information <laughs> coming at them in the 1800s. And yet we still sit them at desks with chalkboards like it is the 1800s. So I feel like our government with, you know, sort of the level of taxes that we pay in our country, I, I feel like we could be doing more and could be doing better to support our, our, our kids to have a fighting chance in this new world. I agree. And you taught me, you've taught me so much through the research I've done on you, Chantel, but let's just stay on the charitable work that you're doing for a second, because I want to, I want to call that out specifically. So, you and your husband are co-chairs of the annual Butterfly Ball, which is in support of Boost for Kids. So I, until starting to research you, Chantel, didn't know what Boost for Kids was. Mm -hmm. But this is an organization that's doing very critical, important work for kids all over the greater Toronto area who are survivors of sexual abuse. So mm -hmm. good for you. Yes. Thank God for you on that. Thank you. And then also we get into co-chairs of the Purple Party, which is in support of childhood cancer for Canada. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize until I started digging into this that only 5% of cancer research money goes towards children's cancers, which of course are on the rise. Yes. It's alarming. It's it's hugely alarming because not, you mm -hmm. know we're giving we're giving to the Canadian Cancer Society nothing wrong with that but nobody right. I didn't know and I've given to cancer research for many years I didn't know that in fact what gets to the children's cancer area was so small it's so small shocking it's so small it is shocking and and the crazy thing is just to touch on the Childhood Cancer Canada which is perfect timing. Uh, to talk about it because we have our annual event coming up on June 8th. And this, uh, we've changed the name to One Golden Night because the color for children's cancer is gold. And we wanted to be able to reach everybody on a national level. Again, you know, the work that we're doing for Childhood Cancer Canada, even though in the name it says Canada, it's still so isolated to Toronto. So we're trying to expand to Canada. And, you know, in fact, prior to recording with you today, we were on a committee call because of the event coming up on June 8th. Um, you know, I was joking that why Sick Kids has Ryan Reynolds and we have Yannick. So let's try to let's try to capitalize on having Murdoch. And so this year, for the first time ever, ever, ever in the history of Murdoch Mysteries, they're opening the set. So the party is going to be on the Murdoch Mysteries set on the back lot, which is you know, when you when you think of film studio, you have your interior scenes and you have your exterior scenes. And so, here in Toronto, there are there is a studio where they have all the indoor sets, but then they also have the outdoor sets. So we're going to be celebrating, you know, the great work that we are doing. Childhood Cancer Canada is doing in raising the percentage of money that goes to kids research, because the other thing too is that people need to understand is that kids' cancers are really quite curable. You know, unlike unlike adults, kids' cells are replicating so much quicker, right? So the ability to knock out the disease cells and help them recreate 
you know, healthy cells is greater. And furthermore, and this is, and I have a girlfriend who I have a few girlfriends, but uh, more recently, a girlfriend whose daughter did not win her fight. Um, and she said to me, and I think it's important to your listeners that they understand this is that they are treating children with adult research medicine, which means they are treating them with dosage that is meant for adult because they have not, they are not doing the research for children's cancers. So they don't know. So they are taking things that they use for adults. And she said the most heartbreaking thing that she remembers about her daughter's fight was the agony that she went through. That was the treatment. Like the level of sickness that she endured while she was trying to fight for her life was worse than anything that the actual disease did to her. And to me, that's just heartbreaking. Children should not, there is no reason why we can't split those funds 50-50. There's just no reason. And, and, you know, nowadays, the stat has been updated just this year. It's now seven cents of every dollar, you know, so 7%. It's still not nearly enough, you know, and our children shouldn't get cancer and and they do, unfortunately. And I just feel like, you know, our government, again, it goes back to the government. It's just, there is a lot that can be done that sadly is not getting done. So that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to make it more, more accessible. There is, there is tons of research out of the U.S. and out of Europe that is being is super effective on children's cancers. So, you know, we're trying to get access not only to those studies to present to the government, but also to the treatment plans. So there's a lot of work to be done, but it is rewarding when, you know, you see we've got a couple of our teens that are going off to university and one girl in particular, Helena, uh, she's a survivor and she started petitioning the government at age 11 to wow. give money to life-saving because it was life-saving and it is life-saving treatment. And she finally, after years and years and years of petitioning, uh, got them to do a 30 million grant a couple years ago for oncology for this particular, um, this particular treatment. So it is happening. It's taking, it's taking far too long for my liking, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it, that one is very near and dear to my heart. Um, just because there's, like you said, Lots of people give to cancer research, thinking it is, you know, going across the board, but uh, it's not going to the children. And I feel like they they deserve a fighting chance. Of course they do. Well, first of all, I'm sorry that your friend lost her daughter in that fight. So my mm-hmm. condolences for that. And these beautiful little innocent kids, thank God for you and what you're doing in terms of raising the awareness and thank God for Murdoch for doing what they're doing for the one golden night. Now we hadn't yet, Chantal, just for our audience, connected you with this man you reference as Yannick. So, (laughs) because it's not about him, it's about you, but he is your husband. So maybe you can explain just to the people who just heard that name, Yannick, uh, who is that man and what does he have to do with Murdoch Mysteries actually? Thank you. I yeah, I take that for granted, right? It's 35 years and it's so funny because my my very best friend, we've been best friends since she likes to point out she was 14, I was 15, because she's younger. Um that, you know, she and I, it's just like, it's just Yannick, you know, because he's been a he's like he's like a old pair of sneakers by now around here for us. But um, so I've been married to Yannick Bisson, who's a Canadian actor, well, a global actor, and he has his, I would say, most notable role to date is Murdoch on Murdoch Mysteries. So he plays the key character, Murdoch, and they are, they finished season 16 and looking toward season 17, which is outrageous and crazy to think. It's it's long been Canada's longest running drama. It has the most hours of television of any other Canadian drama. So it's it's a lot to be excited about and proud of. And, you know, it's interesting because when you put it all together like that, you're like, wow, that, that that's a huge accomplishment. But then when I put it back to, I wish there was more we could do for Childhood Cancer Canada and more that we could do for the kids of cancer. Like, you know, I watched Ryan Reynolds 
make an ugly Christmas sweater. It goes on the side of sick kids and sick kids raise millions and millions of dollars when Ryan Reynolds asks people for money. And, you know, so I, I, I find myself getting frustrated that we don't, as a couple, have more notoriety, not because of me. I, we live a beautiful, great life, but I'm like, God, I wish, I wish we had more clout with our name so that we could make more money. So this would go faster, you know, so that we could get more money to the kids, that we could make more money, that we could get more kids in treatment, that we could save more lives, that this would, that he and I would have a more immediate, larger impact to bring families comfort and not lose so many kids. Yeah. Well, you're starting in a terrific place, being one golden night. So let's do a call out. If people around the world would like to Mm -hmm. contribute, help, donate, attend, let's plant it right here. If you can, we will also obviously uh, put it in the show notes, but how would people get involved in this? How could they attend? How could they buy a ticket? How could they make a donation so that what we've just been talking about can be actioned by anybody listening to the podcast? Thank you. I love that. Yeah, let's do that. Um, so if you're outside of Toronto, and even if you're not out, even if you are outside of Toronto, if you want to attend, the best way to do that is go to childhoodcancercanada.org um, and go to their website and punch in one gold a night and it should lead you directly to ticket sales. Um, the tickets, it's because it is a once in a lifetime event. The Murdoch mystery set has never, ever been open to the public for this, for this kind of event. There have been fan events where people have been able to come and tour the set, but you've never been able to party back in 1905 <laughs> while living in 2023. So we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to enjoy ourselves. We're going to have a beautiful night and the, um, you know, the set is open. You take photos, you'll, you'll get to see Yannick, get a photo with Yannick. Should you be able to track him down if, if he's not too, too busy, but those tickets are available on the website, childhoodcancercanada.org. And there's still many general admission tickets available. We have been so fortunate. All our sponsorships are sold up, which is huge for us. Uh, it's the first time ever. So we're super excited about that. And if you're unable to attend, but you have the call in your heart to give something, give anything, I know it, you know, it, it's so difficult to ask people to help. We're in, you know, we're all in difficult times right now financially, the, you know, the pressure, the inflate, everything. It's, it's a lot. So I respect and understand that. But if you have the call in your heart, you know, every bit counts, $5, 10 whatever you can give. I'm always reminded from the, the, there was one verse in the Bible that said, he who gives from little has more glory in the eyes of God than he who gives from much, right? So a lot of people, I think, get hung up on, well, I don't have a lot to give, so therefore I'll give nothing, anything. When we have little and we give what we can, it's just so noble. And so it's, it's you know, sacrificial and it's very, very honored and appreciated. So that's how we are at Childhood Cancer Canada. We don't ever feel like any gift is too small. And that, again, you would just go to childhoodcancercanada.org and they have a donate button and just, you're welcome to go in there and, and give what you can. And it all goes to the kids. It all, it all goes. We don't have a shiny building. We don't have marble offices. It's um, very, very, very much devoted to the kids. And on top, we don't only help families with research, but, um, you know, speaking of hard times, we also have a benevolent fund where, you know, a lot of cases when families um, have a child sick with cancer, one parent has to leave their job to tend to the child. It's literally, even though they might be in hospital, they're in hospital, you're not leaving your child alone in hospital for treatment, you know, and if they are at home, you're not leaving them at home. They're not going to school. Like, so oftentimes one member of the the relationship of the partnership needs to stay home and lose their job. So then that becomes a financial strain. And um, unfortunately, you know, very sadly and all too often, parents cannot even afford to give their children a proper funeral. So that is another part of uh, the work that we do um, is that we we give families the funds that they need to um, say goodbye to their children in a, in a very respectful and, and loving way. So there, we have a lot of moving piece parts over there. It's a very... It's a a beautiful and incredible organization. And that's not to say that Boost is not. Boost is great, but Boost is is kind of like a sick kids. It's a bigger machine. 
And, you mm-hmm. know, Yannick and I, we did our, we did our four years of being co-chairs and, you know, they, you know, they make over a million dollars annually with their fundraising and they've got government funding and they've got a Toronto police division that works there. And even childhood children's aid society has an office all within the office building uh, the the boost offices has its own police force has its own children's aid workers so the kids literally when it happens that they're sexually they come there and they have doctors and nurses and they get examined and they tell their story and children aid children's aid steps in immediately so it's really really quite remarkable the way that these young victims don't have to then be taken out and go back home and then have to go to the police department the next day and then go and move around. It's just, it really is very beneficial in not only their healing, but in the the legal aspect of mm. getting their lives back, you know, from their abusers. So, and that's not, I'm not taking away from the great work that we do at Boost and we're still annual donors there, but um, yeah, we've, we've committed ourselves more, wholeheartedly with, you know, action and deed and energy to Childhood Cancer Canada because they, they, they need us over there. So thank you. And anything any of us can do, we will. Thank you. So when you talk about kids and kids charities and kids cancers and boost, I feel the passion coming from you. And if you could offer one piece of advice as an, as an entrepreneur, it would be follow your passion. Mm-hmm. And yet there is also, especially as women, the research that I've done, we worry about failure. We worry mm-hmm. about taking time away from our kids and our families. And so we have entrepreneurial spirits. We have entrepreneurial ideas, but we push them down. We ignore them. And that passion that might be there at the bottom of those desires it's just squashed. So you are a big, huge flag waver and role model for follow your passion. Am I right? Do you want to talk about that a little bit in some of the work that you're doing with your podcast and your books and your and just this finding your passion piece? Thank you. Well, thank you for saying all that because I, I sometimes feel like it's almost like a double-edged sword for me. You know, I, I, I look at other girlfriends that I have, or I look at just women in general who seem so contented to, you know, um, fully stay home and raise their families. And I loved being home with my daughters. And, you know, we made that work. That was something that mattered to us. And, you know, we, we had eggs for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and bagels, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, Lots of times, you know, while Yannick, you know, was renovating houses in between acting gigs, and it still mattered that, you know, I was home with the girls. So we we gave up a lot in order to have that be what we were committed to. And although I I'm grateful that I did it, I I was forever had an entrepreneurial itch, you know, and I don't know where it comes from. Um, my mom shakes her head. She's like, I don't know why you always, you're all, why you just don't stop sometimes and just, you know, cause she didn't have it. I, so I guess it must come from my dad. Cause I remember my dad was quite like adventurous in his occupation. You know, it was, he was always dreaming and scheming of something else to do outside of his regular, his regular job. So I would say it would probably have to come from his, from him. I think for me, how, what goes through my head? on a, on a regular basis is the very, and not in a morbid way, but in a very real way that you get one life, you get one kick at the can called life. And I just can't imagine telling myself no in this lifetime. And I mean, telling myself no, when it comes to, as you're saying, passions, interests, dreams, desires, because for me, I feel like I would rather go out dead tired in my 90s knowing that I didn't leave any stone of interest unturned than go out in my 90s with I wish I shoulda, coulda, woulda. You know, I don't want that list. And again, going back to 
I understand that it's privilege, you know, speaking here. And, and a lot of people say, well, the, you know, you, you have that privilege because of who you are. And I, I actually put, po- I had a post last week where I challenged that thinking of privilege as opposed to priority, because I think that so many of us have picked up on these buzzwords and we make them our identity and we use them as excuses to do less than. You know what I mean? It's easy to say, I can't because X, Y, and Z. Well, for all intents and purposes, I should be, I should either be a drug addict or an alcoholic or maybe somebody who had no value to her body because of all my sexual abuse and assault. And I could be, you know, I could be an escort or I could be, you know what I mean? Like, because statistically, when you go through those kinds of things and when you have those genetic lines, you should, you should become all those things. So then I, the question I ask is if that is how it's supposed to be. And the fact that I am not, does that not then mean that I have made choices every step along the way to be different than how I should be? And if that's the case, if I'm a woman, a a spiritual being having a human experience, doesn't that mean then we all have that power? So I, I, I challenge the privilege notion because I don't subscribe to that because that, that allows you to sit in victimhood forever. And again, I appreciate I can say that as, you know, a woman who's white and I'm not being oppressed in the same way that a minority woman is being oppressed. And I own that and I understand that and I acknowledge that. That being said, I still do believe that there are steps that we can make every day in our lives that run downhill to our children to break the cycles. You know, my mother did it as an immigrant. You know, she was an oppressed person, even though she was white. You know, she was an oppressed person and she was able to cobblestone a better life for herself. And then therefore I've cobblestoned a better life for myself. And the hope is that my daughters will as well. So I think that's where that mindset is for me is like, yes, I have an entrepreneurial spirit, but I also have very much the desire and drive that I love life and I want to experience as much of it as possible in my one life. So that's what drives me. Really, that's what drives me. And I'm going to read something that I had up on my wall, which basically you've just explained. I've overcome everything that was meant to destroy me, and I'm still standing and actually living a life of grace and joy. So here's my next question for you, Shanta. (laughs) What does bravery mean to you? Because we're on Breaking Brave, and this is my signature question. Just shoot from the gut. What does bravery mean to you? Bravery means to me doing the things that you are afraid of, the things that scare you, without being sure that the outcome is going to be in your favor. And whether that means in your in your intimate relationship, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, we get into relationships and they're maybe not what we wanted them to be, or we're not getting out of them what we want. And I think for women, it's very easy to shrink back and we go silent and we go inward and the relationship takes its toll on us. And, and so I think for me, bravery just means being attuned to yourself, like taking the time to become one with yourself. Because I feel as women, we're so disconnected. We're pulled in so many directions. Whether with me, you know, it was, you know, my father was an alcoholic, abusive. So I, I, I sort of lived outside my body always as a young person. And then, you know, the sexual assault and rape, that took me further outside of myself. And then also getting pregnant young, you know, then that was my focus, you know, my, my new partner and my children, that was my focus. So I didn't live, I didn't really reside inside of me until really my mid to late twenties that I started to realize that, oh, I don't know who I, I don't live inside my body. So I think a lot of us women, there's so much that happens to us. And we're often raised and taught in society that do for, do for, do for, that we don't do for ourselves. So I, I think the biggest piece of bravery for me, and, and I think we can go right back to the beginning of our chat, was, 
you know, when I decided I was going to do the acting thing, no matter what, like that was my first moment of like, oh, I really want to do this. Like this, that was my very first moment of knowing that it was something that I wanted to do for myself. And regardless of the pushback that I was getting from at that time, my most important relationship, I still stepped out and I did it anyway. So I think that that's what bravery is for me is that if you're up against odds or you have a fear of not knowing what the outcome in is and you do it anyway. I think that that's what brave is is doing what you know is going to make your soul happy is brave. You know, so many of us will only do stuff if we can see the outcome. You know, if we can see that it's going to be successful, then we do it. Well, that's not brave. It's doing it without knowing that the outcome is going to work in your favor. And doing it in fear, you know, do if you're afraid I, and you do it anyway, that's bravery. Thank you. Words of wisdom. And you're living that life, Chantel. So thank you for sharing this. How can people connect with you, read your books, follow your podcasts, send questions for your podcast to be dealt with on the podcast, your website? Here's the Let's find out how we can be part of this incredible life that you are creating for everyone around you. Thank you. Well, you know, that's really what Without Losing Your Cool is all about. It's it's a relationship-based brand. And it's really about how do you have a healthy relationship with yourself so that you can have better relationships with friends, with partners, with coworkers, if you're a mom, with children, you know, so that's what Without Losing Your Cool is all about. And it's very tongue in cheek, you know, it's obviously none of us are getting through life without losing our cool, but it's like, well, what do you do once you do, you have lost your cool? How do you, you know, mend the bridge with a parent that you have, you know, uh, you're estranged from or a marriage that, had a terrible breakup. Like, how do you mend all these fences without losing your cool? So uh, that's what I talk about in the podcast. My, my guests, I have incredible guests on every season. So the best way to reach me and learn all about the Without Losing Your Cool brand is chantelbisson.com. S-H-A-N-T-E-L-L-E, last name Bisson, B-I-S-S-O-N, Dot com. My books are available for sale there. I have a weekly blog there that you can go and read. The podcast is available through there as well. Um, if you love Instagram, you can follow Chantal Bisson Instagram account. You can also follow the Without Losing Your Cool Instagram. Um, different stuff gets posted on both accounts. And yeah, I, I mean, to if you have a question that you want to be featured, we're getting ready to start season three there is a button under the podcast where you can go and just ask a question and you might get chosen to be featured on a solo podcast where I answer your question for the guests. But that I'd say that's the best way to find me in those places. Thank you, Chantel. Thank you for being such a flag waver for bravery and living that every single day of your life. And thank you for chatting with me today. It has been an absolute delight. And please come back. Please come back and chat with us again because we've there are so many things we didn't even get a chance to really touch on that I would love to have updates on later on down the road. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It would be an honor to come back. And yes, we didn't even talk about Chantilly's place. Exactly. <laughs> Please come back and we'll talk about that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marilyn. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at MarilynBarefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.